You are listening to Squid and the Ultimate Leafs fan. Hello, Canada and hockey fans of the United States and Newfoundland. And an extra big hello to Canadian servicemen overseas. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of uh, Squid and the Ultimate Leafs fan. I'm Mike Wilson, the Ultimate Leafs fan, and joining me as always, my winger, Ricky Squid Vive. Squid, how are we doing today? Like every other day. Nothing. <laughs> exactly. Watching TV. We've got well, hockey to watch now. Well, I took an hour walk this morning and uh, uh, then started watching some TV, which I will do afterwards. And that's about all we're doing <laughs> these days. So, um, you know, what are you going to do? I mean, it is the rules and that's just the way it is. We've got a uh, interesting guest today, another one of your ex-teammates, uh, and this guy probably is more famous for an event that happened on the ice that almost cost him his life without the quick thinking of uh, Sabres trainer, and I'm referring to Clint Malarchuk. So you know all about that when you were there that night. Yeah, that was pretty, uh, I will say it was pretty, it was, it was really, really scary. Uh, and if not for Jim Pizzatelli, as you mentioned, our medical trainer, uh, who, you know, reacted very, very quickly and wisely, you know, Clint may not be on here with us today. So, uh, yeah, it was a very difficult thing to watch, uh, especially one of your teammates and a guy like Clint, who everybody, you know, loved and, and as a teammate and as a person, but uh, pretty scary night all around. Well, we're going to hear from him firsthand and hear from his side of the equation where he was experiencing it all. And uh, so we'll, we'll get to Clint in a couple of minutes. But first off, hockey's back. Uh, as of this recording, at least played last night. Uh, and when we, by the time you're listening to this, they'll played on Friday night. So I know there were some issues with uh, Rogers and people watching games and stuff like that, like that last night. But what was your impressions of that uh, opener? Um, I, I thought... A little bit sloppy, I think, both clubs. I mean, obviously, with, with a short training camp and no exhibition games and so on, um, they probably really haven't had a great opportunity to work on all the, the real things that they need to as hard as they, they do in a regular game. So I thought it was a little bit sloppy, but, hey, two points is two points, even though, unfortunately, the other team got one that is in their division for this year at least. But you know what? There was it, it was it was hard to kind of follow because there was so many uh, changes in lines throughout the game, like which we anticipated that Thornton wasn't going to play the whole game yeah. with with Matthews and uh, uh, Marner, and of course they had Hyman up there a few times, and so there was a lot of line juggling going on too. But uh, you know, but hey, they came out with the win, and I, I think. Uh, you know, Freddie was okay. He maybe could have been a little yeah. bit better, uh, but but he's a slow starter anyway. Most years he starts off slow and then he gets into his own and he's pretty tough to beat. So, you know, hey, one and zero, undefeated. <laughs> yeah, listen, there's no marks for neatness, okay? So we'll yeah. take the points anywhere we can get them. And but I think the. The one thing that, that stood out to me was, and I know it's only one game and you want to give a little bit of time, but the Thornton experiment with Matthews and Marner, I just don't think is going to work. I, these two, 
they, he looked like he was hurting them at, at, at points throughout the game last night. And strictly because these two are a puck possession group, they really move the puck quickly and they're always on the go. And he was, they looked like they were looking for him a lot of times to get set and they couldn't find them or he couldn't get there. And as you pointed out the other day, they need somebody to dig that puck out and it's banging and crashing. You could see when Hyman went on there, it all of a sudden stepped it back. They got more comfortable with the way they were playing. And, you know, it's no coincidence that, you know, once the regulars were playing at the end, like the top guys were playing the last part of the third period in the overtime, Montreal couldn't keep up with them. Simmons did a good job as far as doing what he was supposed to do. He looked a little tentative out there himself. Bogosian looked a little bit more like the Buffalo Zach Bogosian. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, he looked really so, funny in that number. I don't know why, but I guess because nobody's <laughs> worn it for quite some time. But <laughs> Yeah, and, and the stick looked a little bit thin. It's a big piece of lumber that the guy used to carry it before with it. But, I, you know, I guess all around, not bad. It looked like an opening night game, looked like an opening night exhibition game. Yeah, we shouldn't complain. We got the two points, but you could see that once they started getting in their legs, things started coming together pretty good. Pretty good. Yeah, the one thing I noticed with Hyman, especially being on the third line playing right side, which he normally always played the left side with, say Matthews and Marner, or Tavares and Nylander, whoever. He looked awkward playing the right side. He almost looked like he felt like he was out of place. He really did, and then. You know, the couple of shifts that they put him on the left side, I thought he looked more comfortable. Yeah, that's a good point. And uh, yeah, because it is different for him with the way he attacks in the zone coming yeah. from the left side as opposed to the right side. So, but I think he's going to be moving up and down that lineup, as we saw last night, quite a bit for the, at least for the next half a dozen games. So they really get a clear picture of what the new guys can do. Vessi yeah. scored a goal last night, but. The knock on him has always been his work ethic, and pretty much he got handed a gift goal on a heads-up play by Nylander. But other than that, he was pretty much invisible most of the night. Yeah, I didn't see him uh, doing a whole lot throughout the, the portion that I watched until my t television went off on me. But, but um, <laughs> yeah, I, I remember watching him in Buffalo, and then all of a sudden he, he goes elsewhere to the Rangers, I think it was, and... and Played a lot better there than he did in Buffalo, but I, I wasn't unbelievably impressed by him or anything. I thought he was average at best, and uh, he's going to have to step it up if he's going to stay in the top six. Well, there's going to be some uh, with the back-to-back -back coming up, uh, you know, against Ottawa as we're speaking. The second part of that'll be tonight. Uh, I think that uh, we're going to see some of those guys that are sitting in the wings, waiting to go. The ready, the be ready group. Yeah, I mean, you've got uh, Engvall, uh, you've got... Adam uh, Brooks, uh, Robinson. I'm thinking more of the, the Russian... Uh, Barbanov is playing on the fourth line. No, but the other guy that played last year that cut his wrist, uh, I can't remember, his name won't come to me. Oh, Mikhaev, yeah. Mikhaev. Well, he's, yeah. So I, I think, go, I, in, in my estimation, anyway, I think if you look at Engvall and Mikhaev, or probably... The, the two likely ones to come in, uh, I would think, uh, up front anyway, if they're going to take anybody out. Um, mm -hmm. That's just my thinking. I, I don't know. I like the way both of them play. They're both big bodies. Uh, they both play a physical game, and, and they can move. They're, they're fast. 
And so in my estimation, those would be the two likely guys that come in and take the place for someone else. But the problem being though, is that a guy like VC, they take him out of the lineup, they got to put him on waivers before he can go to the taxi squad. So, you know, there, there's going to be a whole lot of thinking going on about it because, you know, those are the things that, that have to happen before you can bring anybody off the taxi squad. Well, he's going to get a look. And Makayev actually played pretty good last night. So, you know, he, he's looking to move up that lineup and maybe get another shot playing Tavares, who played a good game last night with three points. And uh, he looked yeah. Nylander looked like he stepped up his game a bit. So you're going to have to be playing at the top level to play with those top four guys on whatever side it is, if Hyman with uh, Marner and Matthews. And on the Tavares side, you better your game better be at the top of its level if you're going to play with those guys. So there's going to be a lot of guys pushing to be in that spot. That's for sure. Oh, there's no question. And uh, I, I think the big thing is your vision and your your reading of the game has to be very, very good. And, and you have to obviously be pretty quick to keep up with those guys. But, I, I mean, you look at how they played the last few years together with uh, – uh, what's his name on the left side rather than playing right wing on the, four, on the third line. Uh, I believe he'd be the line would be much more effective going back to that combination that had so much success. Yeah. Well, we're going to be. Hopefully, we're going to be. We're sitting here as that people are listening to this, and uh, they've got back-to-back uh, -back wins. I'm going for the third one uh, tonight after listening to this one, or listening to this just before I watch the Leafs win their third in a row. So we'll see. Now. I guess just before we bring Clint on, we'll go through our little bit of, uh, uh, it's my mistake too. Uh, today I had a couple of questions and I got put them off to the side here. So we'll get to that next week for people coming in with us. But just this day in leaf history, as we like to refer people to, here's one I think, Squid. You can get the boys on the golf course with this one and maybe win yourself a free hot dog and maybe a Coke or something off this one. But the only night, January 16th, 1934, Ken Doherty, scored the only hat-trick in NHL overtime history as Toronto defeated Ottawa 7-4. And by the way, they're playing Ottawa tonight as we're speaking, so that's why I picked this one. Uh, you got to remember in those days, overtime was a 10-minute mandatory period in those days. Today, it's sudden death. Oh, I, I didn't know that. Yeah, and a lot of but people don't know that. But not during the regular so season in the playoffs, correct? That was the play. That was, yeah, that was, uh, that was uh, uh, overtime history. Now that was during, I guess that was a playoff game at the time in January. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and in January 16th, 1968, another little bit of a interesting fact for you. Toronto Maple Leafs beat the NHL All-Stars 4-3 in the final All-Star game that had the defending Stanley Cup champs play the rest of the league's All-Stars. And in that game, a young kid by the name of Bob York picked up his first assist in his first All-Star game. How about yeah, that? Many, many more to come after that, too. <laughs> many, many more to come after all of that. So we have that. So there we have it. So I think there's enough about us there today. So I think what we'll do is we'll turn it over to Clint. Let's hear what he has to say. All right, Squid, our guest today had a pro career that spanned over 16 years. A very good goalie. But he's probably more well-known, and I'm sure he's probably sick and tired of talking about it, or maybe he's not, about a very scary incident. Uh, you two were teammates at the time of this happened when his throat was cut with a skate in Buffalo one evening. He's written a, a book as a bestseller. He's done a documentary. He's been a public speaker. He's a rancher. And we're looking in the background at a real setup here. I mean, it looks like the set of Dallas we're looking at here. And I'm waiting for JR to walk across the room. 
But anyway, I'm walking into the show today, Clint Malarchek. Clint, how are we doing today? We're doing good. We're doing good. Uh, I'm in northern Nevada by Lake Tahoe, and the weather's pretty pretty nice right now. Unseasonably warm, so I'm happy. And just before we started, Clint showed us uh, where Lake Tahoe is, about a 30-minute drive from you, and there's going to be two games there this year. That's right, uh, but unfortunately, no fans. So, And since they kicked me out of the NHL, I'm, I, I'm not a coach or a player anymore, so <laughs> I can't, so you can't get to so how you spend it? Well, I mean, this is probably a, a, probably a crazy question, but how are you spending your days? I can see in the background, we have a pretty good indication of what you do. Well, I keep, I keep pretty busy as a uh, public speaker, but ever since COVID started, uh, that's, been, that's been shut down. I, I do have a horse business. I'm an equine, uh, certified equine dentist and chiropractor, and uh, I got my own horses, of course, and uh, buy and sell, trade, whatever I can do to make a buck right now. <laughs> it's uh times are tough right now you know yes as everybody's experiencing that clint it's everywhere and uh now squid and i we you know this is really probably journalism you haven't really experienced before. this is really hard hitting and some of the stuff we're going to come at you with and right off the bat we love nicknames and you've got to handle the cowboy goldie now there's been a lot of guys from out west a lot of guys have grown up on ranches like how did you get that label well you know i did grow up around horses uh grew up you know, just uh, basically cowboying. And that's what I do in the off season. I'd rodeo in the off season, which I got in trouble for doing uh, later on uh, when they found out. But, uh, you know, I just kind of grew up around it. And I, I, you know, I have a passion for hockey and horses, really. Oh, that's that's pretty good. I, uh, you're still doing any kind of rodeoing or? or I do a bit of roping. Oh, yeah? Oh. I, I don't... I don't get on the Bronx anymore unless it's uh, unless I'm starting a colt and he bucks a bit. Uh, I've, I've got one here. He bucked a bit the other day, but uh, nothing, nothing too uh, crazy anymore. Well, I just watched the series so Yellowstone and it was all about cowboys and roping and riding and everything else. And I got to tell you, it was pretty darn nice. And I, I just thought, you know what, maybe the, the day will come where I would love to go and just you know, stay on a ranch for like a, a week or something and ride horses and, and do all the things that they did in that movie because it looked like it was it was work, but it also looked like it was a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, if I liked you, Squid, I'd say you got an open invite here. <laughs> yeah, but I can't get across the border. Well, yeah, I could if I flew, I guess. But <laughs> well, If he liked you, he would, he said. Well, you, no, I yeah, heard I him. I, heard, I, I just ignored that. <laughs> You're, you're, you're welcome here anytime, Squid. Bring joy. Well, the, um, uh, you know, now, now, Clint, just speak to maybe the early days of growing up playing hockey. And, and again, you mentioned you're on a farm, you grew up around horses, and just uh, talk about the early days of hockey. Well, the early days, ironically, uh, you know, I, I, we kind of moved south. I grew up in Grand Prairie, and then we, I played most of my minor hockey in Edmonton and uh, grew up on the same neighborhood as Kelly Rudy. And uh, we grew up together. He didn't start, uh, he was just a great athlete, no matter what, baseball, throw a football, like beautiful uh, mm -hmm. spiral. And uh, he picked up hockey. I think he was like 12 years old, never even skated. And he was so athletic, he caught on real quick. And we, we, we played every sport together. And, and uh, you know, Grant Fears from our, our, well, he's outside of Edmonton in Stony Plain area or Spruce Grove. And uh, so, you know, there, we had a few goalies come out of uh, that Edmonton area, Pete Peters uh, going back a bit. And, 
uh, a few others now. Well, how did you get stuck in goal or did you want to play goal? Well, uh, my, my dad was a goalie and, uh, you know, played without the mask. I got some old black and white pictures and, uh, of him playing. And then my older brother, seven years older, uh, was a goalie too. So it wasn't like I was the fat kid or couldn't skate. They had to stick me in goal. It was, uh, or the love of the equipment. I just wanted to be like uh, big brother and dad. Fantastic. Now you ended the, your minor hockey. How did you end up in Portland and speak to the couple of years you played there? Well, back then, uh, you know, they, they used to have, uh, now I think they have a draft uh, for the kids going to major junior. And back then it was territorial and the Edmonton oil Kings were the team that moved to Portland. And so they still held the Alberta territory. So that's how I got uh, in, in the, into their system. I played a couple of years uh, uh, you know, like a tier two uh, junior and then went to Portland for a couple of years. And uh, that was, that was different because uh, I think we were the only American team out of any of the, the junior teams. Now we've got quite a few in the States, uh, you know, in the Ontario league um, and, and in the Western league, I'm not sure if there's any in Quebec or not, but uh, um, you know, we were like the only U uh, S team. So our travel was pretty extensive. Uh, I remember one time we went on a 26 day road trip all by bus, you know, and uh, yeah, we started out West and worked our way to, I think it was uh, Brandon or Winnipeg and then worked our way home. Oh, wow. Squid. I'm glad I, I, I'm glad I played in the Quebec league back when I did, because it was, everybody was for, I think Chicoutimi was the only trip we had that was more than three and a half hours. And uh, so yeah. we didn't travel that much. It was, it was kind of nice to, to actually do that. Uh, I couldn't even imagine. You imagine the smell of that bus after 26 days of <sighs> hockey players. And, and back then it was all fast food, right? Yeah. You know, oh. you know, they, they, they found out chicken was good protein for athletes. And so we ate at KFC. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. That bus must've been really pretty smelling by the time you guys, Got back. <laughs> and, and there, there was a few fights on the bus too. <laughs> well, twenty-five well, days. I imagine. would assume there would be. Yes. Yeah. 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 You're yeah. You're passing that puck on my skates. How am I supposed to get points? <laughs> Bang. You know. You can, I would uh, probably could just, it, you know. It wasn't even about that. It was about some guy passing gas real bad, and they tell him, "Oh, thanks. <laughs> Quit that. Go to the restroom." Uh, big fights. Well, you know, so now you, you're in Portland, uh, Clint, I, every player kind of goes through this or maybe you didn't. W was there a moment in time you thought that maybe you could do this for a living and, and maybe speak right into your draft year before Quebec took you? Well, you know, I, 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 when I played like junior B or what I say, call it tier two junior. Yeah. Um, I started to excel. I was like 15 years old playing and, uh, you know, a lot of the guys were over age 20 year old and that. So I kind of thought, wow, you know, maybe I, it was a dream anyways. I don't know if it was a reality at that time, but it was definitely my dream. Mm -hmm. My first year in Portland, I didn't have a very good year and missed the draft. Uh, I was very, very homesick. It really affected me. Uh, we had some issues back home and, and uh, I felt like I should maybe be there, but uh, I stuck it out. And the next year I, I ended up having a decent year and got drafted by, uh, by Quebec. Now, coming from Western Canada, you go to your first training camp coming East uh, you're a Western boy, as I said, but it had to be a tough, I mean, speak to your adjustment to drive into your first camp and just kind of being a goalie 
remember, there's only a couple of goalies trying out. It's not like you can turn and talk to 30 other forwards or defensemen. How did you get yourself through all that? Well, my first year was in the American League. I was uh, in Fredericton. And yeah. uh, we didn't have a very good team. We were shorthanded a lot of times. So the next, uh, the next season, we split Fredericton with Vancouver. Well, Quebec and, and Vancouver split yeah. Fredericton as the uh, farm team. But I was seeing 50 shots a game. And, uh, you know, we were playing with 14 guys sometimes the first year. And uh, we, were, we were calling guys up from the Intermediate League in Fredericton. And, I mean, <laughs> yeah, it was, it was kind of a gong show that first year. But I think it really helped me seeing all, all that rubber. Um, you know, I probably, I, I stopped more rubber than a prostitute that year. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, what about, uh, now you played, now Jacques Demers was your coach. Very good point. Um, I, I don't mean to cut you off, but. No, that's fine. Doc was very, very, uh, uh, personable. He cared about us, uh, uh, not just as hockey players, but our personal life. And I remember, uh, getting a dear John letter from my girlfriend in Portland. And, you know, of course, this is like my first girlfriend, my first dear John letter. And I was, I was a little bit uh, rattled and Jacques noticed I was kind of moping around a little bit. And he called me yeah. in his office and, you know, Hey kid, what the matter? You don't look like yourself. And uh, later that day, he said, you come to my house for dinner. And his wife made dinner and, uh, you know, he, he was just like a father figure uh, as much as a coach. Uh, really, uh, I think it really helped me through my first year of pro, especially. And, I, you know, I was uh, from out west and I was all the way in the Maritimes now, long ways. Uh, from well, lucky, lucky you. You got, you got to go to yeah. the Maritimes, Clint. <laughs> I know. I love the Maritimes. I'll tell you what, uh, Squid, the, uh, the Maritime people. They, they remind me a lot of where I grew up in Grand Prairie, you know, ranchers and farmers, very down to earth, uh, very kind and friendly people. And it, anytime I go out there, I went to PEI uh, to do a, a, a speaking event, uh, I think it's uh, about a year ago last summer, and it was fantastic. The people just are, are awesome there. Yeah, I always, now, um, I always said it that. It sounds like, oh, sorry, it's great. So I always said in the Maritimes, if your car broke, broke down, uh, and you were kind of in the middle of nowhere. You could walk up to a farm and they'd take you in for the night, feed you in the morning, and they'd have your car fixed and ready to go for it the yeah. next morning. And that's just how the people are out there. Yeah, they are very true. Or you just wait 10 minutes till a car comes by and they'll, they'll yeah. for sure pick you up or tow you into town or whatever. Yeah, great people. Now, just I want to carry a little bit further with uh, Jacques uh, Demir. Uh, you, you mentioned the fact that he was good for you emotionally, as you know, as a, a kid coming from out west. Now, professionally, was that just enough to give? Like, did he just let you develop on your own? Seeing you had the talent, obviously, you're taking 50 shots a night. Yeah. Did he just figure they'd leave you alone and just looked after you to make sure you weren't distracted other ways, and that sort of carried you through to make it to the NHL? Yeah, you know, um, I, I think so. He pretty much left me alone that way. We did have a goalie coach that came down from Quebec and goalie coaches were not really around back then. And I remember I thought, oh, oh I get a goalie coach. And uh, I don't even think he was this big fat guy, French Canadian guy. And he, 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 he says, okay, kid, we go for beers. <laughs> and so we sit in the pub and drink beer all afternoon and talk hockey. So, you know, it was... But yeah, I, you know, I didn't have a goalie coach really until Buffalo. And, you know, that was some years later, um, you know, so he kind of let me play and, and just work, you know, work hard. I played a lot of games. I saw a lot of pucks. 
And, uh, you know, I, I think I, I think I was rookie of the year. I was rookie of the year on the team anyways. And like I said, we didn't have a very good team and we were shorthanded. So it wasn't like I had a lot of competition, but uh, just seeing that amount of puck uh, pucks every night. What were some of the stranger things? That, now you're coming again from Western Canada, your first year playing pro. So you're thrown right into the fire. So there's no time to sit back and take it all in. But as you look back, what were some of the, can you reflect on some of the stranger, some of the, maybe the funny things you saw in the minors and maybe you just weren't expecting this, like going to play pro hockey? Yeah, for sure. Because, you know, we're pros and supposed to conduct ourselves uh, as pros. And we were on a road trip down in Springfield, Massachusetts area. And uh, we were supposed to, uh, we, we overnighted in Boston for whatever reason and a huge snowstorm uh, hit and a bunch of the boys, we, we went out anyways, and uh, we're in this bar and their taxis aren't running. I mean, there must've been two feet of snow, but there was a snowplow across the street at two in the morning when the bar closed and the guy was in Dunkin' Donuts and his truck was idling. So one of our guys goes in and says, come on boys. And he starts grinding the gears and we're piling in this truck and, you know, just very unprofessional, I guess, but uh, we're still pretty young, you know, we're 20 years old and, and uh, you know, kind of crazy. And I remember, uh, uh, we had a party up at the hotel that night and uh, one of the guys in the, he, he was in the hallway and he, he comes in the room and he's got the fire hose. Like they open up the window on the hallway and he's bringing in a fire hose and he's trying to turn the sucker on. I mean, we had some fun. We had some good times. Well, you, you know, we could, we could do that back then and get away with it without anybody finding out right. for the most part because of no social media and that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, I mean, there was a lot of crazy things, even in the National League that we did, and, and nobody ever found out because, like I said, there's no social media. You try and do that today, and oh. you're in trouble right away. Yeah, and, and, and it was harmless fun for the most part yeah. back then. I mean, it's stupid stuff, you know, that we did, but, uh, you know, we weren't hurting anybody. Um, you know, but the thing is, the cell phones now, we, there'd be a picture with a guy with a fire hose in a hotel, and obviously that would, you know, their social media would blow up over that. But yeah, we, we, we definitely back in our day, Squid, uh, uh, we, we had fun. I mean, the, the game is such a business now, yeah. and I understand that. There's a lot of money up, up but, uh, you know, we played for, not that they don't nowadays, but we played for the love of the game because we didn't get paid very much. Well, we got paid, we got paid decently. And I think, you know, that was good enough for us and we were happy, we were, but we loved doing what we were doing. And I think more than anything, we loved just being around each other. And like you say, doing those crazy things, harmless, but crazy things that, well, people today would think they're crazy back then. Most people didn't think we were that crazy, but we were. My first contract, I was making, uh... I think it was 18,000 in the American league. And if I got called up uh, on, on my, my one or my uh, NHL ticket was like 80. And uh, you know, that, that, I guess it's all relevant, but it's still compared to now. I said, give me one season as a backup, you know, at a million dollars, just one year. <laughs> well, I went through a similar thing. I mean, I was, I was picked fifth overall and signed a four-year deal at 60, 60, 65, 70. And yeah. now I got a what, signing bonus. That with, uh, what, about with the, what about with the baby bulls? Well, that one was, I, I was 19, so I was underage because it was a 20-year-old draft. And 
think there, I think I got 20 for signing and 30 salary. So it wasn't like I was getting rich. Uh, in fact, I think my junior team in Sherbrooke, I believe, offered me more than under the table than what I would have made in Birmingham. And, uh, no, but, no, Squid, name some of those guys uh, that you played with there in Birmingham. You, you wouldn't believe these names, uh, listeners that might not know. Yeah. Oh, gosh, yeah. We had Dave Hansen was on with us one, one time. And, uh, of course, most of, the, Gardner. most of the crazy guys were gone by then. Um, you know, Rick Aduno, Davey Gorman. And, and then, of course, we had the Baby Bulls, Goulet. Uh, right. Ramage, Hartford, Riggin, you got Gaston, Gingra. Gardner was in uh, Cincinnati, I yeah, think. Yeah, he played okay. in Cincinnati. Um, and then, but all Dave Hansen was really the only, the year before they had Billado and Beaton and uh, Durbano, Steve Durbano. Durbano and all those guys. <laughs> and then they got rid of them all except for Hansen. And then everybody loaded up on tough guys. And that wasn't a very good year for us as far as not coming out with any cuts and bruises most nights but you know what hey you're playing professional hockey so put a band-aid on it time the show, uh, that's what about a, the same time the show the gong show came out and yeah. it was probably, <laughs> probably inspired by that league oh i now something uh, just along the minor just before we step into where we got to the nhl just something clint you can touch on and you touched on the 26 hour trip uh, playing junior hockey What's something for the listeners they may not understand or that you experienced in the minors that really how difficult it is? Like maybe the level of play is much better than people give it credit for. The travel is really grueling. And as you mentioned, when you're playing the game for the love of the game, but again, the competition to play at that level is probably way more than people really expect. You know, it wasn't a big adjustment uh, travel-wise and and uh, and things in the American league, because it was still, it was a, you know, obviously a great talent level, but uh, the difference between the American league and the NHL, as far as, you know, travel accommodations, uh, practice, uh, things like that. I mean, you're on the road a lot and it's mostly by bus, uh, at least back then it was. And uh, sometimes we'd fly into a hub, like uh, we'd bus somewhere uh, to catch a flight to Boston and then, uh, from there, we'd bust to Springfield and all the, you know, mm -hmm. the American League teams that were down there. That there was quite a few. Um, I do remember our first uh, road trip. We were, I think it was a six-hour trip to Halifax, and uh, we were playing home, a home and home game uh, series. So we played at home, and then we we traveled uh, uh, to Halifax. It was like six hours or something. Guys were going, "What the heck?" And the guys out west are going, "This is a piece of cake." <laughs> I do remember. That, that was that first year where we had a really bad team and uh, we got beat 10 to two at home. And I remember Jacques Demers, you know, he had the French uh, accent and, and he didn't have a great grasp on, on some of the lingo. And he goes, okay, boy, tonight, uh, uh, 10 to tomorrow, the joke on us. And, you know, he totally screwed that one up. <laughs> and we, we were so bad. We're probably, we're going, yeah, Jacques, it probably will be. <laughs> Now you, you then make the transfer to the Quebec uh, Nordiques. You make it, you're started for a couple of years, but here's one incident. And I'm sure you're going to get a chuckle out of this. In 1984 in the playoffs, you're credited without playing in the game. Yet you're given 15 minutes in penalties. You I'm want to tell the listeners my little story? League. 
I'm from the Western <laughs> League. Come on. I didn't even, I didn't play that game. <laughs> but, uh, my first year, actually, uh, I, I was fortunate to get drafted by Quebec because they didn't have a lot of depth in goal. So I, I kind of almost became the third goalie my first year. And I, my first NHL game, I get called up when we're playing in Buffalo. And I remember Jacques Richard, who, you know, 50 goal scorer, he hammers one in warm up, hits me in the head. I'm getting stitches. I missed half a warm up. This is my first NHL game. And I, I remember Michelle Bergeron coming in and say, he sees me laying on the table, getting stitches. He goes, kid, you know, play. And I said, no, I'm, I'm playing. I'll be fine. Cause I, I'm not going through a day of nerves like that again. And I remember we back then they had ties and we tied the game. I got second star. So the next night we're playing on the Island and they were the defending champions. I mean, bossy, Trache, Billy Smith. And, and so I get the, my second start and we lose that game. Uh, 10 to seven. And yeah, I let in all 10. And I thought, well, Billy Smith let in seven, you know. <laughs> so the, the, the next day, I'm back in Fredericton. <laughs> well, that's, I mean, no, but that night in, in uh, against Montreal, I mean, of course, it's the arch rival. You're on the bench. Those are the days now. A lot, a lot of our younger listeners will not know about the, the brawls used to take place. Maybe just walk us through that one. Now, were you, did you fight in the Western League at times? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I liked fighting. I, I mean, you know, for a goalie, I enjoyed it. Um, but of course, as a goalie, you're not supposed to. Uh, anyways, uh, they call that Good Friday Massacre. It was on Good Friday. Remember, it? We're in Montreal and um, uh, near the end of the second period, the horn sounds and a fight breaks out and then another fight and another fight. Then the bench is clear and everybody's paired up and fighting. And uh so we get uh, we get get it all sorted out. We go in the locker room. We come up for the uh, third period, and we're just skating around. You know, back then you could skate around for a couple minutes and then go to the bench. And we're skating around. Well, the brawl broke out before the puck was dropped, <laughs> and I, I, you know, that's when I got kicked out for fighting. And uh, I remember there was, I was kicked out. Uh, Peter Stasty was kicked out. Dale Hunter was kicked out. Uh, we had five or six guys in the locker room. Uh, you know, for a playoff game, not not able to even go out and watch the third period. Louis Slager, I think, was involved in that, a big part of that big he, draw, was he not? He KO'd uh, Jean Hamel. The linesman was kind of uh, trying to break him up. And Louis, Louis, he's uh, he's from northern Quebec and a real stout. Uh, yeah. Guys used to make fun of him. His French was different. It was real slangish, I guess. Yeah. And they used to make fun of him because they couldn't, the French guys couldn't understand his French. But Louis comes over with a big, I think it was a right hand over top of the linesman and KO John Hamel. Ended John Hamel's uh, career. I think he broke his orbital bone. And yeah, he was, he was sleeping on the ice for quite a few minutes. Now, every player we speak to, Clint, we, we talked about how mostly tough it is that first trade. Uh, you know, you get drafted by team, you get brought, it's your first team, you think you're going to be there for life. We had Curtis Joseph on last week and he was talking about the same thing and how bad it is. But you're, you were a part of a pretty big trade that eventually landed the Nord Joe Sackick. By the way, if the Leafs had been listening to their scouts, they, he would have ended up in Toronto, by the way, but they'd listen to John Brophy instead. But um, how did that whole day come down for you? And what, what were your emotions like going through all of that? Well, I was, uh, it was in the summertime. It was at the draft, you know, draft uh, day. And uh, I was driving to a rodeo and I got to the rodeo grounds and uh, uh Somebody, one of the cowboys says, hey, you got traded. I'm like, what do you mean? He says, I heard it on the radio. You got traded. 
And then uh, my mom called the rodeo office there and said, uh, left a message to call home that David Poyle uh, wanted, wanted me to call him. And so I'd been traded with Dale Hunter uh, to, to, uh, to Washington. Washington. And it was, uh, it, it, it was weird because it was my first time and I thought, whoa, okay. Uh, and the, the good part was I was traded with Dale Hunter. He we were real close. Uh, we were uh, roommates, cellmates. Uh, we did everything together. <laughs> I, I would imagine you might've been cellmates cellmates a couple of nights. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, they always say, you know, who do you call when you're in jail? Uh, your best friend. No, your best friend should be there with you. So that's how Dell and I rolled. Well, unless you're uh, Wayne Cashman when he was in Boston, you know, the famous story about him when he, Esposito got a call from a uh, cop and said, you better come down here and get your, your man. And he said, he went down and he's standing and he goes, well, why you called me? Why didn't he call me? He said, because he took the phone call and ordered Chinese food. Yeah, yeah that's a true story. <laughs> so, no. Sounds like, some, sounds, like some that, sounds like something a goalie would do, not a, not a forward. <laughs> <laughs> well, back then, I think everybody had that goalie mentality. Yeah, you, yeah that's true. <laughs> well, um, on the surface, things seem to work out a little bit for you in Washington. Maybe the first year, you had a good year the first year. The second year, maybe not quite as good, the whole team overall. And then March 16th, you get moved to <laughs> Buffalo. What about that? Uh uh yeah that was uh that was weird because uh it was during the season and it was before practice and brian murray our coach uh at the practice rink he called me in the office and yeah th this is kind of cool because i i was you know squid knows me i'm a pretty uh i'm a team guy i'm kind of popular i'm funny i joke around and i'm i think i'm pretty well liked as a teammate and brian murray was all choked up i mean he was holding back tears telling me i was traded and i go brian you weren't traded. I was traded. I should be upset. <laughs> but he's another good guy that cared about his. He was hard. He was tough as a coach. Um, but he was a good person and, and he cared about his uh, players, his people too. But uh, yeah, I remember going home and, and um, you know, packing a bag. Uh, I had my equipment from the rink and jumped in my pickup truck and drove up to, uh, to Buffalo all, all in that same day. And I'm thinking, well, how do I pay my bills? Uh, you know, my mortgage, you know, you know, we didn't have the internet or, you know, do things online back then. I just remember driving down the road going, I locked my house up now. Now what, you know? Yeah, it's so, funny. Uh, it's funny you mentioned that because, you know, I don't think people realize, uh, you know, what went on back in those days when you did get traded like that. Like you had to be on a flight right away to get to another city or, or drive or whatever the case might be. In my case, uh, a couple of times, my wife had to stay home, sell the house. Uh, my my second one to Chicago, our third one to Buffalo, rather. Uh, I had a two year old, and she was pregnant with a with one, and she had to stay in Chicago, and I didn't see them for two months. Uh, it, you know, I mean, but today it's a lot different. You get a, you get as much time as you need to get to the next city. Um, they have people that take care of your wife, bring them in, show them where everybody lives, where, you know, and then they have somebody that helps you sell your house. It's, it's so much easier, I think, today. Well, it's not easy ever getting traded, but a little easier to make the move than it was back then. Well, teams would actually now, uh, you know, assign uh, 
I don't know, a staff member from the, the front office or something to help that player. Uh, like you said, find a place to live, uh, get a realtor, get, get the family in, uh, take care of all those things. So 16 days after the trade, one of the most horrifying incidents in NHL history takes place. You're on the receiving end of it. Both of you were a part of that, one on the bench and one on the ice. Uh, you both can go through this, uh, but without the quick thinking of Sabre trainer Jim Pizzarelli, uh, we not be, may not be speaking to you today. Clint, just what do you remember about the incident and how it all took place? And Rick, then you can chip in watching the whole thing unfold on the bench. Well, that, that's uh, you know my claim to fame. I wasn't a very good goalie and didn't have any records. Well, I got one of the records as one of the worst sports injuries ever, so I got that going for me. Well, the neck guard. Well, I was wearing a neck guard. But, uh, you know, it was a play. You see it a million times. A, pa a pass from the corner comes across the top of the crease. A guy going hard to the uh, net. And defensemen back then, they'd hook you or hold you up. Mm -hmm. And uh, Steve Tuttle was St. Louis. Huey Coop was holding him up. And Steve's uh, feet flipped forward. And I was coming across on my knees. And his skate just came up and clipped my neck. And, you know, I remember... I didn't know what happened really, but I remember I took my mask off for whatever reason and the blood just flew. Uh, you know, the first couple of pumps were about six feet and then it just kind of poured out of me as my heart rate decreased. And I thought I was done. I thought I was done like dinner. And I remember I don't, I had, I was new to Buffalo. As you said, I'd just been traded there and I was playing the best hockey of my life. Um, you know, my first game with Buffalo, I got a, uh, I got a shutout in, in New York. And so uh, that changed my life for sure. That incident, I prepared for death. Uh, I didn't know too many guys on the team. And, uh, I remember the trainers in the training room. I, I rip, uh, Simonic. I said, rip, hold my hand, get somebody call my mom, tell her I love her. Uh, and a lot of people say, how did you get up and skate off the ice? Well, the, the truth of the matter is I wasn't being a, a hero. I didn't want my mom to see me die on TV. And so it, 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 I, long story short, I was prepared for death, which is basically a trauma. And that trauma really uh, changed my life. Not immediately, because I came back uh, real quick in 10 days. I figured that was the right thing to do. I mean, doctors were saying, no, take the season off. You might want to retire. Um, and, I, and I remember no counseling. Uh, Jim Pizzatelli, our medical guy, uh, the counseling for, for me was him and I went and stood in front of the goal in our street clothes. And uh, we kind of looked around. He goes, this is, this is it. This is where it happened. I go, yep. And we bump. All right. Where we go. That was my counseling. And uh, I got through kind of, uh, I became kind of a hero in Buffalo because I came back. I really think I epitomized every, what Buffalo, upstate New York, blue collar sports fans, loving yeah. an athlete, hardworking, gritty, no talent. Uh, <laughs> um, you, you know, and I came back quick. So I had so much love and support uh, to get me through the rest of that season. It was the next season where uh, I started to have nightmares, flashbacks. Uh, I didn't sleep for 10 days. I'd sleep in a chair, uh, kind of like a, a hard chair, uh, because I didn't want to go into a REM sleep, because as soon as I did, I'd see the skate come up. And I wasn't telling anybody what was going on. I'm trying to be a tough cowboy and push through this. And I remember 10 days... Uh, no sleep. We had a Super Bowl party at uh, Pat LaFontaine's house. And I remember going, and I, you know, I haven't slept and I'm not doing good. I didn't stay there but 20, 30 minutes, had one beer and, and left. And 
I remember going home and, and I was playing with a broken thumb or a fractured thumb and I had some painkillers and I remember reading the bottle, do not drink with alcohol will make you drowsy. I was like, damn straight. So I took a few extra painkillers thinking it'll help me sleep, but I drained a bottle of scotch too, you know, because it said don't drink with alcohol. So as a dumb goalie, I do the opposite and uh, my heart stopped. And so they rushed me to the hospital. I, you know, I got obviously lived through that, but I remember waking up in the hospital and the psychiatrist, they called for uh, thinking it might have been a suicide attempt. And I said, no, no, I just can't sleep. I got this OCD. I can't leave the house. I get panic attacks. And so that was the first time I ever got diagnosed with uh, my long history of mental illness, which I, I had as a kid. I know I did. Um, you know, anxiety issues and, and OCD for sure, but un, all undiagnosed. And so now I got a diagnosis and that was the beginning of a two-year journey of different doctors, different medications, uh, nothing was working. And um, my play was really getting, you know, worse than normal. <laughs> and uh, so I get sent to the minors and in the minors, I remember my first game, I let in four goals on six shots and got pulled after the first period. I mean, four goals on six shots in the minors, even for me, isn't good. I know that. And I remember sitting on the bench the rest of the game with a towel over my head, just sobbing. And I went into our coach, Rick Dudley, at the end of the game. And I said, I can't do this, Rick. I, got, I, got, I can't perform. I got to retire. And Rick being Rick and, and Squid knows Rick, and he's quite a wonderful man. And uh, uh, he uh, uh, got me into the specialist and the specialist got me fixed up right away uh, six weeks it took and uh, on the right medication and uh, I did really well for about you know 13 14 years on that medication uh, and you know that was uh, I returned and played in in the minors I, I played in Las Vegas in the IHL and and you know what Boston Brew I was playing so well Boston uh, offered me a contract and because of what I'd been through um, I didn't really want to go back to the NHL um, because of fear of the pressure. I've been, you know, pressure is obviously a, a big, uh, uh, it, 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 if you got, it, it affects us all for sure. But if you've got mental illness, it can like obsessive compulsive disorder uh, before a game, my OCD would be a lot worse uh, than normal because of pressure. So I didn't want to go back there, and I, I stayed in. I, I stayed in Vegas. They they ended up uh, signing me to a pretty good contract, and uh, I, I negotiated horses into the contract. And uh, it was it was funny because uh, the reporter asked me why. <laughs> yeah, well, the reporter asked me said this must be the first professional contract with livestock involved. Why would you do that? And I said, well, I'm going through a nasty divorce, and if she wants half a horse, I know which end she's getting. <laughs> Well, he wrote that, and I guess my ex-wife, or at the time, going through the divorce with, wasn't too happy with that comment. <laughs> I thought I, uh, I, I wouldn't think she would be, but I mean, I recall that night, and I got to tell you, I mean, I know it wasn't there very long uh, with us uh, before the incident, but you know, Clint had veered himself through the, his teammates instantly as soon as he got to us. The worst part about that game after that incident was. The game was like a, I mean, it was like a game of shitty. Nobody went near anybody. Nobody wanted to hit anybody. I mean, that's what it was. And and everybody was pretty scared. In fact, I think there was a, one in uh, an older gentleman had a heart attack, I think, in the stands that night uh, after that happened. But the worst part about that whole thing was after the game, sitting in the room, not knowing 
you know, because I mean, we, you know, obviously had similar thoughts to what Clint did that, you know, I mean, he, he may not make it. And the worst part was sitting in the room for about an hour to an hour and 20 minutes afterwards, not knowing what the hell was going on. And it was like, finally, we got word that, you know, he's going to be okay. And then we all left. And, but we stayed there until we found out because that was the most painful part of the whole thing. Well, other than watching it, um, was sitting there wondering what the hell was going on. And, uh, it was very, very difficult. And uh, I mean, I'm sure not quite as, as difficult as Clint, but uh, for us, it was, it was emotional. It was, it was a very, very tough thing to get through because we had to wait. We had no knowledge. That was the scary part. Yeah, I was in surgery. Yeah, and we, we didn't know, nobody told us. And, you know, you're, you got 20 some odd guys and the training staff sitting in the room and the coaches in, in their office and they'd be walking in and out and, and there was nobody to give us any answers and that was not knowing what was happening was was driving us crazy in that room i think we might have had beerson and so uh, that might have helped us a little bit but but nonetheless it still was a very very uh i, I don't know how to describe it it was just a, a an hour and a half of uh of anxiousness. I mean, I already had anxiety problems and I didn't, but, but that just was compounded. And, and uh, you know, all you could think of was like, well, what, what the hell's going on? Like, but we didn't, we didn't have any information. Well, you like to think back and, and think, you know, I mean, we like to always like to reflect back and look at things, you know, 2020, you know, as a, besides being at 1201 this year, 2020 vision, uh, you know, we had that, but um you going back and playing after 10 games with the hockey player mentality, you know, one could sit back and say, I mean, obviously that's what hockey players are almost expected to do. But in your case, you know, maybe I, I, my immediate thought would have been, well, you know, if you, if you'd sat out the rest of the year, you'd sat out longer time and maybe really reflected harder would that have changed things. But, you know, the OCD that you knew you were suffering as a child, this must've just weighed on you. You just touched on, just absolutely after a devastating injury, just probably magnified everything for you even more so. Well, and that, I think, yeah, go ahead. I got another that, question that, for you. When he answers. What, what I've learned is, is that's what trauma will do. If you're predisposed, which I was to mental illness, uh, a big traumatic event like that will magnify it and it, it just explodes. And that's what happened to me. Yeah, and I was going to say, Squid and I had this conversation with players a lot, uh, and because this is something that listeners are learning, I think, hopefully listening to a lot of the podcasts with guys like yourself, giving up your time and, and speaking to people, because hockey players have never really done this before, and hearing about the other side of it, because whether you're a mailroom attendant, a lawyer, accountant, or a player playing professional sports of some sort, when you leave the office, or in both your cases, leave the hockey rink, there's a whole other life that's no different than the working guy that, that include anything from changing a diaper, a tire, taking out the garbage, drinking problems, drug problems, or some sort of mental anguish. And I think, you know, I think more and more that's being spoken about, people are starting to realize that and have a whole different look on it. Well, uh, you know, as far as my OCD goes, um, you know, I struggled with it for sure. Uh, but I, I credit it too, because it gave me a work ethic, you know, I repetition, repetition, working out. And I saw a squid uh, a year ago this month, in January, at a reunion uh, weekend in Buffalo. And we're walking down the street and uh, 
Squid says, uh, you know, Clint, I read your book and you, I never knew all this stuff. And especially the OCD he says, the only thing kind of different about you, he said, you're a very normal goalie. The only thing that was kind of weird is you'd be in the weight room for four or five hours after practice. And that was the OCD, but we're good actors, you know, like we really can hide it when we need to. And, uh, you know, uh, we're, like I said, we're good actors. I was like uh, Bradley Cooper, except better looking. <laughs> the, uh, when I look back on that too, I mean, you know, myself, I mean, uh, not knowing that I had anxiety problems and they never diagnosed me with those problems. And of course, what did I do to kind of help me get through that was alcohol and a lot of it in, in some, at some times. And then eventually I quit when I was 35, when after my first year of coaching, and then I, the anxiety came back like harder than it was before. And then I got properly diagnosed and like yourself, like tried, they tried a whole bunch of different medications. So I found the one that worked. And then, you know, I, I kind of could, could go out and lead a normal life. Wasn't anxious about behind the bench or before the game or going to speak in front of a crowd. I mean, yeah, there's a little, there's always nerves with those things, but nothing like it was for a little bit when I, when I quit drinking, but in your situation, and, and I've told many people this, uh, I remember uh, we were playing Boston in the playoffs and we won, well, who was, uh, Darren uh, Pupa was our goalie who broke his arm. Then they made the, tr the trade for you because we needed another number one goalie. So you come in and you're playing real well. And Jacques Cloutier, who didn't play much there in Buffalo, was our backup. And we get into the playoffs in Boston. We win the first game in Boston, 3 nothing. And Ted Sater was our coach, I believe, at the time. And then we were playing back-to-back. -back. And I, I think the mistake he made, and, and that's no offense to you, Clint, in any way, shape, or form, was not starting Jacques the next night. He didn't feel Jacques had played two nights in a row. But we had a 3 nothing lead in that game, too. And then we ended up losing it, and then the next two at home and lost the series. And uh, anyway, I don't know. I mean, it seemed to me that all of a sudden their game plan was to get close, as close to you as possible and try to get you off your game. Coming off that injury, obviously, you know, that might have had some effect on you know, what transpired the rest of that game, I would think. Well, I, I do remember that very well. And, uh, you know, you know what affected me more than anything uh, was I was very weak from the loss of blood. It, it was in the middle of summer before I really felt like I uh, regained my strength. And I remember my knees were knocking in that game and just fatigue. And um, I remember in warmups, that brutal Boston crowd there, uh, I'm skating around and they're up at the glass going like this, slashing their, my, and I, oh, man, that, that's no class. <laughs> I almost died. But uh, I, I, I do want to touch on that uh, squid about uh, there's a huge correlation between mental illness, whether it's anxiety, depression, whatever it might be, and self-medicating. So addiction, uh, because it works. I mean, you know, before my suicide attempt, I was drinking 25, 30 beers a day just to get through a day because I was just a mess. Uh, of course, you know, that's a lot of beer, but, you know, it was American beer and I'm Canadian, so it's not, not as bad. But, but you know, that self-medicating and people uh, should understand that a lot of addiction, you got, you see a person that drinks a lot, maybe ask why are they drinking? Yeah. yeah. They're probably addicted to it. The substance 
uh, physically now, but why did they need to drink like that? And it's usually uh, a correlation with some anxiety or depression or OCD, whatever it might be. Uh, and the thing, attacks. One of the great things about, about yourself now is that you won't speak publicly about that. And of course you have the bell let's talk thing going on in Canada, which I think is really, really, I think, you know, we're at a stage now where probably 80% of the people that do suffer from any kind of mental illness are not afraid to talk about it, but there's still probably that 20% that feel that they do, they're going to be labeled as weak or, or not effective or, you know, and that sort of thing. And I, those things have to change. I mean, uh, you know, to, to see what you went through all those years and, and so on. And I mean, you know, the knowledge that they have today, I don't know why people don't speak up more. Well, you know, Michael Landsberg, who suffers yeah. with uh, depression, severe depression. I know Michael, and I spoke with him before at events, and um, he coined the phrase sick, not weak. And I think that's a great uh, phrase because people perceive mental illness as a weakness, and it's not. I mean, uh, example, who's the toughest, strongest mentally uh, people in the world, men and women, is our military. And they go and they go to war and they come back with PTSD and they self-medicate and die by suicide. Um, so they're mentally tough. Athletes are mentally tough. And there's more and more athletes coming out with, uh, you know, Robin Leonard, for example, uh, with his struggles and with addiction. You know, he had both going, you know, he's like me. And, um, you know, I think that's important that people understand that it's not a weakness. It's a sickness and it can be it can be cured. And uh uh, that first step is getting help, uh, admitting, you know, to somebody, hey, I'm struggling here. When I wrote my book, uh, I put my email in the back of the book, and I could not believe how many people emailed me or Facebooked me and just said, oh, my God, that is my story. That is my, my demons. Or, you know, I went, holy smokes, there's a lot of Clint Malarchuk's out there. I had no idea. Well, I was going to say to both of you guys, uh, first off, uh, Deb and I, my wife and I, we helped Michael uh, host an event for Sick Not Weakness when he first launched a few years ago with Matt, Mike Babcock at our place. And uh, so we were, and, and I know that I was telling Rick before he came on the air that um, when he came over to initially, and we've known Mike a number of years, to come over and discuss how we were going to lay it out. It took him two weeks to get the courage yeah. to come to our house. And it was just me and Debbie going to be there, nobody else in the house, but yeah. he couldn't get himself out. So along those lines, and you guys have both touched on it, of decades of mental illness being and issues being ignored and they were viewed upon as weakness and not a sickness. It's now very much a part of our everyday lives and thank goodness it is being addressed. But what I'd like you two both to comment on is that everybody says it can't be me or it could be me or somebody I know, but this now has got far reaching aspects right across the universe. Both of you two guys, even in the world of professional sports, would people be shocked or would they be amazed at how many people actually, even in the world of sports, in our case, hockey, actually have this issue. Uh, you'd be amazed. You'd yeah. be amazed at how many, uh, you know, I'll step out and say that when my book came out, I had several, more than several, uh, current players reach out to me saying, oh my God, thank you for, for writing that. I thought I was the only one. <laughs> and that the doctor, people got to understand too, that uh, when the, the psychiatrist that really helped me he explained it. No one had really explained it to me like he did. He goes, you know, um, you know, you got a chemical imbalance of the brain. 
I'm like, no shit, I'm a goalie. <laughs> and he goes, you don't produce enough serotonin in your brain. He goes, it's no different than a diabetic not producing enough uh, um, insulin. Insulin. Right. And, and he says, chemicals, different organs, that's all. It's no different than be a diabetic. But there's no shame in be a diabetic. No, exactly. Ricky? And I, you know, I, I think, I think you're right, Clint. I think we'd be shocked if, if we, uh, or people would be shocked if they realized how many, let's just say NHL players, uh, are suffering from some kind of mental illness and are getting treated for it. And, uh, in fact, Colin Wilson, I was telling Mike earlier, just retired because of OCD problems, got into, uh, taking something to get through the day and then something uh, he called even stronger to go to bed at night. And then he started drinking more. And then he retired after 10 years. And he was like the seventh overall pick by Nashville. He played with my son at the U.S. program. That's how I know him. Kerry Wilson, uh, his father, played with Calvin. And uh, so he just retired because of that. So, hey. You know, you got seven or eight hundred players in the league. If you you went to a company that had that many employees, I would say probably the rate is probably twenty percent of the people suffer from some kind of mental illness. Would be my guess. Yeah, I, I I'd agree. I'd agree. It might even be higher. Yeah. Um, it's not always mental. It's not always mental illness. A lot of times, it's uh, emotional distress. When people are going through, like with COVID now, people are out of work. People are getting laid off. People are losing businesses and they might not be mentally ill, but they're going through emotional distress, probably a lot of uh, uh, anxiety, probably a lot of depression, and they've never experienced it before in their life. So, you know, there's a lot of people right now in today's world that are that are struggling for sure. Well, one of the ways to identify a problem and get the solution is to identify it and to speak about it. And with guys like yourself and Ricky and some other players that are out there talking about us on a regular basis, the Michael Landsbergs of the world and Babcocks, this is this is a good start. Uh, hopefully progress will be made and you want to keep up the good work and want to get at the end of it, Clint, when we finish, we just got a few minutes left here and we'll, we'll wrap up with you. Will you thank you very much so much for your time and giving us today an email maybe if somebody like to reach out to you and maybe look for somewhere they can go for some help. We can get that off you before we close out. But on a maybe a lighter note, getting back to the hockey side of it, just as a, our distraction, who is, let's get to the fun side of things now. Maybe who is one of the funnier teammates you ever played with? Uh, Dale Hunter was, uh, he wasn't like a real witty guy, but he was a prankster. Oh, he was ru and ruthless. And uh, usually dragged me into, you know, some of his pranks. Hey, let's do this and let's do that. And well, give us an example. He got all afraid when he stole his truck and he had the kid in tears. Well, we were, uh, well, <laughs> totally unrelated. We had a guy I was coaching in Atlanta and, and the training camp, the guys are all coming in and staying at this hotel. And this guy, uh, young guy, he's got his, all his bags, all his belongings in a suburban or Yukon or something. And he pulls up and, and uh, gives the keys to uh, the supposed valet. Well, there was no valet at the uh, at that hotel. Any, anyways, probably one of the craziest things Dale Hunter and I did. We were with Quebec, and the team president Marcelo Bou, and Dale Dale and I hung. We were rink rats. We we'd be there a long time after everybody left. And Marcelo Bou, he's a big heavy set guy, and he goes in to have a sauna, 
And so Dale and I, we filled, went to the shower and filled up a bucket of real cold water, <laughs> opened the door and just fired it in there and we were gone. This is the president of the Quebec Nordiques. He's the guy responsible of getting the Stastny's over from defecting from Czechoslovakia. Yeah, Rick, was, uh, uh, now, what, uh, now you've got, what about your day? You must have had a couple. Oh, there was lots of guys. You know, the guys I, I liked the most, and Clint was kind of like this too, is that they didn't say a whole lot. At times, there was times where they'd just sit and they'd just take everything in, and then bang, they just come out with a, a, a something, and it would be the funniest goddamn thing you ever heard in your life. Those are the guys that, that I loved, was the, the quiet guys that just came out with those quick-witted uh, one-liners that and that would crack the whole room up. And it was like, uh, and Clint was, was very much like that as well. Well, uh, you know, you mentioned Darren Poopa and I, I don't know, I was, I was playing with uh, Buffalo. Darren Poopa was back from his wonky arm. And, uh, um, you know, he, Poops is a very quiet, yeah. unassuming, doesn't laugh, doesn't smile a lot like, and uh, his, his fiance told uh, my girlfriend at the time, Darren thinks Clint's the funniest guy. And I ended up uh, emceeing his wedding. And I would never, ever thought that, I didn't even know Poops liked me because he had no, he never had a, a reaction. <laughs> Yet he thought I was the funniest guy in the world. <laughs> now, um, on another note, one we like to get goalies on is, was there a player or players, maybe just we'll use one, we'll be nice to you guys, uh, one guy who just seemed to have your number every time he came down and he just stopped for the life. You can't stop this bloody guy. Well, uh, I, you know, Mike Bossy, he was potent and uh, he'd chew me up pretty good, but you know, Wayne Gretzky was not a very good hockey player. No. And, and you know, <laughs> he got so much confidence playing against me. He became great. <laughs> okay. Now what about on the other side? Anybody ever come to say, God, I can never beat you. Like what? I just can never put one by you. Like who, whose number did you have? I've never had that experience. <laughs> uh, you're being, he's being modest. Isn't he squid? He's being modest. Uh, probably very modest. Uh, I, I would imagine there was a few guys. When I played in Quebec, I, I used to have good luck against Buffalo, just the team. Uh, you know, I'd have good games against them. That's why they traded for you. Probably. Probably. Yeah. They didn't see my other games, obviously. <laughs> well, it's funny because well, I just said, got a couple minutes left here. I said that one time recently that one guy I had the most problem with was the guy you mentioned earlier, was Grant Fuhr. And it, it took oh, me yeah. a while to figure out what the hell it was. And then finally, one, one day, I'm watching a film <laughs> and I go, well, he catches with his right hand, and that's where I usually <laughs> score. <laughs> I go, yeah. Like what a scoop, what a dummy! Like I didn't figure that out sooner. Like you know, it's just it wasn't something that you know, like because I used to uh, visualize quite a bit, and but I didn't have that visualization going that he caught with his right hand, and I had, and then finally after that, I had a little bit of success on him because I knew that I wasn't going far side because that was where his strongest point was was his glove side. And that's where you like to, you say that's where you scored most of your goals. And I call bull. Uh, you scored most of your goals with the puck hitting you in the ass and going in. Uh, a lot of them were like that <laughs> while I was getting cross-checked in the back of the neck. Or something. That would be data. Yeah, still count. Yeah. Well, yeah. They still they, count. Well, listen, we just want to listen, Clint, we can't thank you enough uh, for coming on being so uh, candid and frank about uh, your situation and what you're doing. And, 
I'd uh, love to have you back on again at some point. Uh, go through and just keep up with you and how you're doing. Maybe we'll get it. Well, maybe we'll get you back when the Tahoe games get close again at the end of the year. But yeah. anyway, uh, thanks very much. And uh, for the listeners out there, uh, you know, if you want to hear about anything, maybe get Clint's book. Have a look at that. Uh, you can DM, DM us. And uh, if anybody really looking for his help, we can get you directed that way. So send that to Rick or I. Uh, Clint, thanks very much for joining us. Anything, Dad, before we go, Squid? Um, you know what? I, I just, like I say, I, I had the pleasure of playing with Clint I, after reading the book. Gave me a lot more admiration for the man because I didn't realize what he was going through uh, from an early age all the way through. And uh, it kind of it gave me a little bit more courage, I think, thinking back to reading his book when I was doing my book and to not be afraid of, of telling people what my life was like and what was going on inside my life, as opposed to the outside stuff that they knew about. And uh, so it gave me more courage going forward with all of that kind of stuff. And, uh, uh, you know, cause we're not, Hey, we're, we're human beings just because we play in the NHL. Like I said, many times there's hurdles and there's uh challenges that we're going to face as well that's right clint well, any final word yes good come see me come see me you saw the mountains i showed you earlier and uh i'm i'm close to lake tahoe so you can certainly ride a horse here at my place Bring how, how far how far from vegas oh six and a half hour drive what, okay we're pretty i'll far stay north. on the ranch and <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Alrighty, guys. Well, listen to Clint. Thanks very much again. And uh, listen, good luck with everything going forward. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. My pleasure. Thanks a lot, buddy. Well, Squid, that's one of the more, um, I, I don't want to say emotional, but one of the more, uh, you know, candid conversations we had about uh, issues that are facing everyday people and NHL players, no matter who they are on a daily basis. And we've all crossed paths with somebody in our lives and we are more so these days. And Clint's uh, a wonderful speaker, and uh, I'm, I'm telling you, I, that's the first time I've met him, and as you said, you've told me about him and what a funny guy he is, but boy, he's a terrific speaker, and I'll, he should be out doing more of this, for sure. Yeah, he, he's, a, you know, Clint's a great person, he really is, and uh, the things that he had to go through, I mean, I, I encourage anybody who doesn't know Clint Marshak at all to buy that, his book, and I can't remember the name of it. Um, the Game Changer. Is that what it is? Anyway, it's an amazing book and for anybody that, that perhaps suffers from mental illness of any OCD or whatever it might be, uh, to read what he went through from the time he was a young boy all the way up until like the time he tried to commit suicide. And uh, I mean, he still has a, a bullet lodged in his brain that they can't take out yeah. because it would be too risky. Uh, so he's a very lucky man, and uh, I encourage anybody to, as as far as buying our books as well, buy Clint's book because it's very, very. Uh, it, it reveals what, I mean, some really, really dark stuff that uh, that he went through uh, during his playing career and 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 post playing career, and uh, uh, it was it was a great read. But he's a good friend of mine. I, I loved Clint from the time I met him, and. Uh, uh, he's a great guy and, and thankfully that he's going out and he's speaking to people about the things that he had to go through because it's going to help a lot of people. 
By the way, it's called the crazy game. Sorry, not the, I was thinking of another book. It's called the crazy game in the U.S. It's called a matter of inches, how I survived and decrease and beyond the U.S. version. So there's two versions to the book and I, we highly encourage it. There's a documentary he has done also, and they do speak in engagements. So when he does get out to speak, yeah. uh, he's definitely worth a listen. And uh, we'll certainly get Clint back at some point again, to, to see how he's doing and keep up with him. But I love the fact that he, makes no mistakes or makes no, no bones about what he did and how he's tried to self-medicate himself. He makes, takes no excuses, doesn't blame anybody else, but he looks himself straight in the eye and takes it all himself. And I think that's the part about him that people admire when you listen to this man or read his book. Yeah. He doesn't, uh, he doesn't apologize for anything. He doesn't, uh, you know, look at anybody else for what caught like this cause that he did this or this or that he takes it on head on and, uh, and he fought through it head on. And, uh, you know, today he's, he's doing very, very well. Well, we've come to that point in time again, where it's another one of the shows in the, in the can, as they, so to speak, and everybody listening to this, hopefully later on, you'll be tuning in to watch the Maple Leafs play against the Ottawa Senators. Uh, we'll be back next week with another edition to watch earlier in the week. Uh, we do have our own Rick and I are growing coming into the 80s. So we now have our own Instagram account. Okay. So we've got Squid and the Ultimate Leaf fan. Watch for us out there. If you're getting a little crazy notes from us about liking or friending us, it's because we don't know what the hell we're doing. And we're asking you guys to follow us. Just bear with us. Remember, we are old. Okay. So that's what we're doing. We will be back next week with another guest. Follow us on all the sites that you know us on and Ultimate Leafs fan or Rick Vibe and Squid and the Ultimate Leaf fan on Twitter and Instagram. And watch for some of our postings as the week goes on. Everybody have a great week and we'll talk to you soon.